Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Isaiah 7. For the first time in the book of Isaiah, we begin to find Isaiah speaking in more narrative, giving us a bit of background and history. And actually, the background and history that we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 7 is a build-up to what occurs at the end of chapter 7. All of the information at the beginning of chapter 7 is simply setting the table and giving us a background and reason for the prophecy that comes at the end of the chapter and what a good prophecy it is. So as long as we're doing background and history, rather than just jump right in at chapter 7, verse 1, if you want to go back to 2 Kings for a moment... We're going to read the end of 2 Kings 15 and the beginning of 2 Kings 16, which is a more detailed history of the things we're about to read in Isaiah 7. 2 Kings chapter 15, we're going to be starting at verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah of Judah, Became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Only the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, against Judah. When we start in chapter 7 of Isaiah, Isaiah is just going to make passing reference to all that that we just read because his audience would know this. This was all very current history to them. And when we read it in Isaiah 7, it just simply appears that the king of Israel, the northern tribes, and the king of the Amoreans has just simply gotten together and made a plan. Let's go attack Jerusalem. Let's increase our property. Let's take some people captive. Let's just go do it without reading 2 Kings you wouldn't understand the sovereign plan behind it because we're very specifically told here, in those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, against Judah. One more time, we see that you just simply cannot read the Bible. Whether you're reading the history, whether you're reading the narrative, whether you're reading the prophecies, whatever you're reading in the Bible, you always see the sovereignty of God. You always see the hand of God controlling the events that are occurring in his world, in his creation. When we get to Isaiah, he's going to say, God is going to say to Isaiah to go and meet up with the king and tells him exactly where the king is, where he's located in the city. 
If you just go over there to the upper pool, if you spend some time over there, you'll see him. Go over there. Indicating that God, again, in his sovereignty, knows where everybody is. He knows what everybody's doing. He knows what everybody's thinking. He knows the intentions of their hearts. And before they were born, he had already written down the annals of history in advance. The Bible keeps saying that, and we know it theologically, but then we also see it spelled out in places like this, where kings came against Jerusalem because God brought those kings against Jerusalem. People don't go to war randomly. People go to war because it fulfills some satisfying element of God getting us to the culmination of human history. So in those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, against Judah. And Jotham slept with his fathers, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Ahaz, his son, became king in his place. So then chapter 16, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Sometimes you'll see his name shortened as Ahaz. Sometimes you'll see it spelled out to the full name, which is Ahaziah. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. And he even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. And he sacrificed and he burned incense on the high places, that's up on the mountaintops and in the groves and the hills and under every green tree. Those were all the nature god sacrifices. So he was sacrificing to a great many natural gods while not sacrificing or keeping the law of Yahweh, the king of Israel. And so that's why the record here would tell us that he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. Then Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war. And they besieged Ahaz, the king of Judah, but they could not overcome him. That's really interesting. Why couldn't those combined nations who would have had a larger army than Jerusalem could have amassed, why could they not overtake him? That's the question that's going to be answered when we get to Isaiah 7. And of course, the answer is because God said no. <laughs> so even though you have whole armies and you've got kings and you've got all your generals, you've got all your people and your horses, you've got your chariots, you've got everything else coming against Jerusalem with intention of attacking King Ahaz and overtaking Jerusalem, overtaking the wealth and the riches that were in the temple, that their intention was all humanly driven, was all fleshly driven, was all driven by their pride, and yet despite how badly they wanted to accomplish the overthrow of Jerusalem, they couldn't do it unless God would allow them to do it. Yes. And so what we're going to see is Isaiah is sent to Ahaz specifically to tell Ahaz, don't worry, God's got it. Hmm. You're not going to be overthrown. And is Ahaz going to believe him? No! Why are people so stupid? Why don't people believe and understand when God says, no, I've got it. I've got you protected. We will get into all of that because all of that is background to the wonderful prophecy at the end of chapter 7.
So anyways, Ahaz sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and in the hills and under every green tree, and then Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war, and they besieged Ahaz, but they could not overcome him. And at that time, Rezin, the king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram, and he cleared the Judeans out of Elah entirely, and the Arameans came to Elath, and they live there to this very day. So that was one of the areas on the border of both Aram and Israel that they had been fighting about for years and years. And at this particular moment, finally the Arameans took over that land. What the Arameans didn't know when they took over that land was that within 60 years, the Assyrians were going to come down on them, and they were going to be completely wiped out as a nation. Anybody met an Aramean lately? <laughs> they're wiped off the face of the earth as a people group, gone. They don't know that when they're out here busy attacking people and collecting land and thinking that they were so powerful in the Middle East. But no matter how powerful you think you are, there's always someone stronger. All right, so with that background, with that understanding, we can start in Isaiah 7. You know the rule that was all introduction. Isaiah chapter 7 begins by encapsulating what we just read. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, now you're going to see that phrase a few times, to the house of David. There, David was the first king after God's own heart who actually ruled from Jerusalem who ruled over Judah, and God made an everlasting covenant with David that it would always be his descendants that were going to sit on the throne ruling over Judah, which is why it is so important that when Jesus walked on the planet, he was referred to as the son of David, and why the genealogies at the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke both go right back to David because they want to demonstrate that Jesus was in the line of David so that he is rightfully king of Judah. So when you see this phrase, it was told to the house of David, what it means is it's being told to the sitting king who is on the throne right now, who is part of the lineage of David, fulfilling the Davidic covenant that David would always have a son sitting on the throne there in Jerusalem. When it was reported to the house of David saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, Ephraim, okay, the northern tribes, you've got the northern and the southern tribes. Israel originally was 12 tribes. They were split into 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. The two southern tribes are known by the nickname Judah, and the 10 northern tribes are known by the nickname Ephraim because Ephraim was the largest of those tribes. And so now you've got the Arameans camping in Ephraim, the largest of the land areas and tribal groups in the north. That's not a good sign for the folks in the south. As soon as they hear that the Arameans are now siding with the Israelites, remember, 10 to 2, then they know that war is coming because these two nations have joined up against them. So when they heard 
that the Arameans had camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of the people shook like trees in a forest, shake with the wind. Very poetic way of saying, scared to death. They were just frightened, as you would be if you knew that there were masses of armies amassing against you just north of you. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son Shir Jashub, which is a name I am so happy has fallen out of popular use. <laughs> you and your son go to the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. That's very specific. God knew exactly where the king was. It was able to tell Isaiah, I've got a message for the king. And you're my prophet, so you're going to speak for me. Let me give you that message. And then I'm going to tell you exactly where the king is. Now, we could read that and say, well, this is a special case. This is a special pleading here. This is a moment when it was important to get this message to that king. And so God specifically knew where that king was because of this particular moment in time. So it's a special case. But the reality is, that we see God doing this all the way through the Bible. We keep seeing him say that he wants messages to certain people, that he wants to tell certain people, he wants to find certain people. And every single time, he knows where they are. And then Jesus walks on the planet. Never, never would a Jew go to Samaria. That's where the half-breeds lived. Jews hated Samarians, would never go through Samaria. And Jesus says to his apostles, I must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because it turned out that he had to go to one particular well where one particular woman would be drawing water so that he could bring salvation to her household that day. And he knew where she'd be and when she'd be there. So I don't believe this is a special case. I think this is just another indication that God knows where everybody is and what everybody is doing and how you're behaving. He knows what you're up to at all times. So the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. God's even name-calling at this point. What are firebrands? They're what's left over. They're the ashes that are left over after a fire. They're no longer wood. They're no longer strong and secure. They've been burned up. So God says, why are you worried about them? I'm about to tell you what's going to happen to them. And God, again, is in complete control of them. Even though the Arameans are not Israel, are not Judah, and have no knowledge of Yahweh, Yahweh is still in complete control of them. Amen. And not just the Aramean king, but all the armies as well. So don't be afraid. Don't be faint-hearted. Because these two stubs of smoldering firebrands, don't be afraid of them on account of their fierce anger, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramaliah. Notice that God knew exactly where the king was and exactly what the king was afraid of and the emotions the king was feeling so that he would send his prophet to go say, don't feel like that. Put your confidence in God. Have confidence in the God of your fathers. He's going to protect you. 
Why is it so important to protect Judah in particular? Well, ever since Jacob leaned on his staff at the end of his life and predicted what was going to befall his 12 sons, who were the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel, he said what was going to happen to each of them over the course of time and in the last days. And he was very specific to say that Shiloh, Messiah, was going to come from the tribe of Judah. And as soon as that prophecy was put forward, that Messiah is definitely coming and he's coming from Judah, Judah has to remain intact until Shiloh comes. Judah produces Jesus, who was referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It's very specific. Jesus was a Judahite, which is why he's referred to as a Jew, which is just a shortened version of the word Judahite. So Judah particularly, the southern tribe particularly, has to remain intact until Jesus comes. And then historically we know Jesus did come, 70 AD, and Judah's finally wiped out until 1948. So God knows exactly what he's doing. Judah cannot be wiped out at this point by the Arameans and the Israelites. So take care, be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramaliah, because Aram, with Ephraim, and the son of Amaliah has planned evil against you. Okay, now he's telling the king the exact thoughts and intentions of his enemies because he also knows what his enemies are thinking. Talk about a God who's in control. Okay, I'm going to tell you what everybody's intention is. I'm going to tell you the history of what actually happened. This is one of the amazing parts of the Bible, is that God not only tells you the history of the things that occurred, but he also tells you why. It tells you what the intention was behind the things that occurred. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabiel as the king in the midst of it. God now is quoting conversations they had in private that God himself sovereignly overheard and is now telling the king of Judah what his enemy kings have actually said behind closed doors. That's an astounding amount of knowledge that God has of everybody and their words and their intentions and their location. Let's go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. So thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. And now God is going to explain why King Ahaz can have confidence that it's not going to stand and it's not going to come to pass. And his reason is, those are men. They can have all the intentions they want. They can have any plan they want to make, but if I don't allow it to happen, it's not going to happen. Because they're just men. The head of Aram is Damascus. That's their capital. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. So he's just a man. How is he going to be more powerful than me? My intention's going to stand, not his. And then he makes this remarkable prediction. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered 
so that it is no longer a people okay now that's a wonderful prophecy because you can test it you can compare it to human history here you have the Bible saying in advance what is going to happen and then you can go look and check to see if it actually happened this is one of the evidences of the truth of the Bible is that the Bible is the only respected piece of religious literature in the whole wide history of the world that ever does this this kind of prophetic thing that you can check it against it's one of the evidences that it is the Word of God because if it was just people who sat down and constructed this stuff there's just no way that they're telling you the future in advance and so far the Bible has a thousand batting average so far everything the Bible has predicted has actually come true which gives us even more confidence about the things that haven't happened yet so I decided 65 years gee that's a specific number let's do some digging Let's find out if we can actually prove that that actually happened. Here's what I found out. Isaiah would have been giving this prophecy in 734 BC. I've been doing the dates as we've been going through Isaiah. Isaiah is really helpful because he keeps telling you when things happen and who's king at the time and what's going on in the world. It's really helpful when he says things like the year that King Uzziah died. That's when I saw the vision of God. Well, we know what year King Uzziah died, so it's really helpful. Isaiah then gave this prophecy in 734 BC. So 65 years later would be 669. Everybody following me? Mm -hmm. Is my math accurate so far? Mm -hmm. When Assyria conquered Israel in 722, many of those Israelites were deported into other lands by Assyria, and then foreigners were brought into Samaria to populate the land there so that the Israelites wouldn't want to come back to their land because it was already populated by their enemies. But the Israelites were taken into captivity in Assyria. We know that's true. We know the date of the Assyrian captivity. But interestingly, in 669, which is exactly 65 years after this prophecy, history tells us Assyria conquered several different foreign nations and they were all transferred to Samaria by a king whose name I can barely say but I'll take a shot at it you can read about it in Ezra 4:10. the Bible even tells us about it a fellow named Ashurbanipal he was the king of Assyria from 669 until 626 one of the first things that he did was go and conquer many small nations and bring them also to populate the slave culture that was going on in Assyria and essentially that would have been enough to intermingle the Israelites who were in Assyria which would have shattered them as a people group and they have been scattered along all four winds of heaven ever since nobody knows exactly where those ten northern tribes have gone it's why we call them the lost tribes of the Bible and that all happened in 669 which is exactly 65 years after this prophecy was put out are you amazed yet I mean the Bible just keeps doing this it's astounding stuff so at this point Ahaz the king in Judah is being encouraged to trust God put your faith in God God is going to protect you and he has already told you what's going to happen 65 years from now when the whole northern kingdom is not even going to be identifiable anymore I know you're afraid of them today 
but I'm about to wipe them out completely, which is why he could say they're just a firebrand. They're just about to go out. Then on the other hand, verse 9 says, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you do not believe, you surely shall not last. Okay, so God is calling for faith on the basis of, I'm sovereign, I'm in control, I know what's happening. I know where they are, and now I've told you what they're plotting. I've even told you what they have said behind closed doors. And I've even told you that after you die and you go to your father's, 65 years is going to tick off, and there's not even going to be a Samaria anymore. And by the way, it's a lot less time than that that the Arameans are going to disappear. And so God is saying, what are you so worried about? I've got this under control. Now we get to the prophecy. Now, by the way, as we continue probably into next week, what we're going to see is that King Ahaz does not follow faithfully after his father. We already read that, that Ahaz was, was not a faithful and a good king, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And yet, because he is the king of Judah, and Judah has to remain intact, nevertheless, God is faithful to him, even though he remains rebellious against the God of Israel. Here's the next demonstration of his bit of rebellion. Verse 10. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God, make it as deep as the grave, Sheol, or as high as the heavens. What a great offer. I mean, we know, Paul says it, that the Jews require a sign to believe. And God knows that. He knows that he's going to require a sign to believe. Okay, so I've told you what's going to happen. I've told you not to worry. I've told you not to be scared. I've already told you that I've got this all handled and that in a... Just a few years, these nations are not even going to exist, and yet you, Judah, are going to continue on until Messiah comes. And so, if you need a sign, ask me for anything. What kind of sign do you want to see? What do you, what do you want to see? Make it as high as the heavens. Make it as deep as the grave. Make it just as big and bold as you want it to be. Just name it. Well, Ahaz says... I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Mm. Now, you can read that in such a way where you could say, well, the law actually says you will not test, you will not tempt the Lord your God. Okay, that, that's a fact. Jesus even quoted it. So, okay, you don't test the Lord your God. So maybe he was being really pious at that moment and saying, no, no, I, I wouldn't think to ask God for anything. But God turns on him because when God says, this is reality, this is what you do, this is what you ask me, and you don't do it, you're still in rebellion against God. So God has flung open the door, I'll show you any sign you want to see, you name it, I'll do it. Just like laying out a fleece before God. Just doing something that God is going to demonstrate to you that he's with you. Boy, what a great opportunity. And Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. So then, Isaiah says to him, Listen now, O house of David. There's that nomenclature again. The house of David, the kings of Judah that sit on David's throne. Listen now, O house of David. 
Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will also try the patience of my God as well? Okay, he thought perhaps that he was being really reverent by saying, oh, I I couldn't. How how could I ask God for anything? I, I couldn't. Instead, you're trying the patience of God, says Isaiah. Isaiah says, God has just told you that he's going to give you a sign. And just so you understand it, you get to name the sign. And then he'll do it for you as evidence and proof that in 65 years, after you're already dead and in the grave, he's going to wipe out the enemies that you're afraid of right now. He's going to show you that sign knowing that you're not going to live to see it. He's going to show you an indication that that's actually going to occur. And you have the nerve to say to him, no, I don't need that. Hmm. And so he says, it's one thing that you've tried the patience of men. Apparently, he was not a popular king. And God has made fun of him and said, you know, you're really trying the people. And not content with that, now you try the patience of God as well? Then, this unbelievably beautiful prophecy comes up. And this is the whole reason for the whole story that we've read tonight. Everything else that we've looked at tonight was leading to this moment. Because then the Lord, who I said to you before, even though King Ahaz is not a faithful king, nevertheless, because of promises, covenants, that God has already made to David... For that reason, he's going to remain faithful to the house of David, and he's going to remain faithful to Judah because Messiah is going to come through Judah. And that's what he's going to say here in verse 14. Well, then, if you won't ask for a sign, remembering what the sign is, he said, I'll give you an indicator. I will show you that these things are definitely going to happen, even though you won't be here to see them happen. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God is going to do something so impossible that it can only be a sign from God. It can't indicate anything but a sign that God is still faithfully with you. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. A virgin's going to conceive. Okay, that's impossible. And then she's going to have a child whose name is God is with us. And that is going to be a sign to you. Now, God speaks in these huge swaths of time. Because as he's promising this to Ahaz, Ahaz only got a couple more years and he's dead. He's gone. He's never going to see this sign. And yet... God says, this is the sign that I'm going to give particularly to Judah and to the house of David so that they know in particular that I'm with them, that I'm for them. God speaks in these kind of enormous, limitless, boundless, gracious signs that only he can do. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name God with us. And he will eat curds and honey at the time that he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Now that's a little Hebraism that is speaking of children who are about two, three, four years old. Uh, April works at a daycare center. 
you're dealing with some kids who are just starting to find out yes and no, right? Yes. Yeah, whether you can get away with it, whether you can't get away with it. So that's the age that we're talking about here. Now this reference to he will eat curds and honey can sound like a positive because we know that the land of Israel is referred to as the land of milk and honey. And curds come from milk, cheese. He will eat curds and honey is also an indicator, as you're going to see in a moment as we continue through this chapter, it's an indicator that the nation is in a time of upheaval, a time of trouble. Instead of there being plentiful food to eat, instead of there being plentiful vines, plentiful wine to drink, instead of there being that, there's going to be nothing but curds and honey because there's going to be a lot of bees because the land is going to be overgrown with plants and flowers. And, and so actually this reference to curds and honey is actually a negative, and you're going to see that as we continue. But the Lord is going to give you this sign. For behold, the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, and before he can do that, the land whose two kings you are afraid of will be forsaken. Okay, the Arameans are going to be gone. And Ephraim, the northern tribes, are going to be gone. And they're going to be gone before the child I'm referring to is even three or four years old. So now we have to understand that particular prophecy. And there are three major ways that that prophecy has been understood by theologians and commentators. And I like commentators with my common stake. I get a side of commentator. Never. I'm alone up here now. But. There are three major ways that this prophecy has been understood. Let me show you the first way. Go to chapter 8 for just a moment. Chapter 8, verse 3. Isaiah is about to have another child. He makes reference to his wife here, who he refers to as prophetess. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. That is the nicest description I've ever heard of a man approaching his wife to produce a child. I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And then the Lord said to me, name him Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Okay, that's one way that that could be understood, the prophecy that a virgin was going to conceive, except for, of course, the fact that she's not a virgin, and the fact that God specifically gives a name to the child, and the name is not Emmanuel, God with us. And yet it was true that when this child was born, who was the second child to Isaiah, which is why we know his wife was not a virgin, and yet by the time this child was four or five years old, it was true that Samaria had been taken into the Assyrian captivity, and years before that, the Amorians had been completely routed by the Assyrians. So it's true. Another way that this prophecy has been understood, and this is particular to... Uh, Jewish commentators who want to kind of erase the idea that this is a virgin conceiving. Because if the virgin conceives, well, we all know where that leads. That leads to the actual Messiah. Mm. And so 
they interpret it as Isaiah was saying, there is a woman in Judah who right now as I'm speaking is a virgin, and she's going to get married and have a child, and before that child reaches the age of four or five, these things are going to take place. So it's still indicating a short period of time, relatively speaking, but he's speaking of a virgin who is going to someday conceive, except that the language, even in the Hebrew, is more specific than that. It says a virgin will be with child. Mm. So she's still a virgin while she has a child. So it still doesn't fit that interpretation, but of course you can understand why the Orthodox Jews would not like that whole virgin conceiving thing, because that leads inextricably to Jesus, and that is the third way that this promise can be understood. Turn to the book of Matthew, and we'll get the New Testament interpretation of it. Matthew chapter 1. I couldn't have made it easier on you. It's the very first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to start reading at verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That is the anglicized version of his name. The Greek would be Aesus, and the Hebrew would be Joshua or Yahashua, some version of that. So you will call his name Jesus specifically. That is a name that means the Lord saves. He has a very specific name that God gives him. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. By the way, let me just add this quickly, a little bit of Israelology here. When he said that, who are his people? Israel. 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 He's still Israel's Messiah. He's still come to save Israel from their sins. What have we been reading about 700 years in advance? 700 years ago when Isaiah was walking the planet, we read that Israel was nothing but faithless. We read that he scattered Israel. We read that he retained the southern tribes, but even then Ahaz was a bad king, and he's going to punish Ahaz, as we're going to read in the rest of chapter 7 of Isaiah. And yet God is so faithful that because they are his covenant people who are in covenant with him ever since Abraham, he is then going to give them the deliverer, the Messiah, the one who is going to save them from the very sins that they couldn't save themselves from. That's faithfulness. And why? Because of promises he made with himself. She shall bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place 
so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Okay, so did we hear from God himself tonight? Did we hear the audible voice of God speak that prophecy to us tonight? No, but we read it in the word of God. And notice here that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when reciting this very prophecy, says, the word of the Lord was spoken to you. When you're reading your scripture, when you're reading the Bible, remember that this is the very word of God. God is speaking to you through his word. And here again is another indication of that. All of this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled saying, and now we're going to read from Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. 700 years in advance, God spoke to Isaiah, who then spoke to Ahaz, a bad king. Not a king who was doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And God said to him, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to bring about a Messiah. I'm going to bring about Emmanuel, God with us. And you're going to know it's him because he's going to come through a virgin. An impossibility under any other circumstances. That's the sign I'm going to give you. And he said that to him 700 years in advance, which is just like when God was talking to Abraham and Abraham said, how do I know these things are going to be true? God made him all kinds of promises. Your, your people are going to go into a land where they're not known. They're going to serve there for 400 years. Then they're going to come out with greater wealth than they went in with. And then they're going to come back and I'm going to plant them in this very land. And, and Abraham says, how am I going to know that that's true? I mean, you're talking about hundreds of years from now. How can I know it's true? And so God forms what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. But the point is, God, who lives outside of time, is able to speak of things hundreds and thousands of years in advance and then say to humanity, that's my sign. That's my indication. That's my evidence. That's my proof, yet again, that I'm the God of ages. I control all the things that are occurring in my creation. So the only person who was alive when he made the promise and alive again 700 years later is he himself. Human beings came and went. But then again, it's human beings who form all these big plans, all these big escapades they're going to do. And it's God who says, not without my say-so. If I don't ordain it sovereignly, it's just simply not going to happen. So I believe that there are a couple of things happening here. First in the prophecy is that it's going to be a very short time. We've already been told 65 years. But even shorter than 65 years, the Arameans are completely wiped out. Within 65 years, you can't find the 10 northern tribes of Israel. They've been intermingled and losing their identity as a nation, as a people group. So it all played out exactly as God said it was going to in a very short space of time, just like he said. But God, when he prophesies, oftentimes talks about something that's going to happen immediately. 
and then talks about how it is a foreshadow of what's coming. And so I think when he says a prophet, when he says a virgin is going to conceive, he knows that 700 years from now. And he knows that by the time Jesus is just a mere child, that the northern tribes of Israel and the Arameans are both going to not be any worry to Jerusalem. Jesus spent his time in Jerusalem and was in no fear of the Arameans. He wasn't in any fear of the northern tribes of the Israelites. That actually all genuinely occurred, but God also could speak of something that was going to happen very close and something that was going to happen very far, and they're both connected because of the sovereign hand of God bringing both of those events along. And then, then he drops these hints. He drops these foreshadows of the ultimate sign that's coming 700 years later. It's just a really big, massive, sovereign God that we're dealing with who's in control of time and history. So verse 17. The rest of this chapter is just kind of bad news. God is going to punish Judah and Jerusalem. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house, that's David's house, such days as have never come since the days that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. And it will come about in that day. Here is God saying, I'm going to bring about the Assyrians. I'm going to bring down the Assyrian captivity on the northern tribes. And it's going to be so bad for them, it's not going to be like anything they've experienced ever since they separated from the southern tribes. They've been living in their debauchery. They've been living, worshiping their foreign gods. They've been doing the things that the foreign nations that I drove out of your land, they're going to do those things and worship their foreign gods under every tree and up on every mountain and up on every man-made altar. And so the Lord is going to bring down on your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah. And what's that thing? The king of Assyria. That's the one that's going to get you. He's the one that's going to come down on the northern tribes. And that's why the northern tribes and the Arameans are going to be wiped out because God wouldn't allow them to come take Judah. Instead, he was going to make the king of Assyria come take them. Sovereign much? Yep. And it will come about in that day, I like this language, that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest parts of the rivers of Egypt and the bee that is in the land of Assyria. God refers to them as mere insects. And yet he's going to call them the way you would call a dog. He's going to whistle for them and they're going to come. These are lands that don't know Yahweh. These are people groups that are not worshiping Yahweh. And yet he says they're going to do exactly what I told them to do. I'm going to whistle for them. I'm going to bring them from the north and I'm going to bring them from the south. And they will come and they will settle in the steep ravines and in the ledges of the cliffs and on all the thorn bushes and on all the watering places. And in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates. That is the king of Assyria. And I will shave the head and the hair and the legs and I will remove the beard. There are several references in the Bible. I've got a few written down, but it's getting late, so I won't go through it. All you need to know is that a shaved head, and especially a completely shaved body, was a sign of shame. All you got to do is think about Job. Mm -hmm. When he found out that his sons were dead, and he rose up, he shaved his head, and then he worshipped in sackcloth and ash before God. 
So that is a sign of repentance. It's a sign of being completely forlorn. And so God says that he is going to use these kings to come and shave with a razor. And he even refers to them as hired. He brought them in as his hired hands to come into the regions from beyond the Euphrates and come shave the head and the hair and the legs and also to remove the beard. In other words, completely shaming the northern tribes for all they have done against him. Now it will come about in that day that a man will keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep. He's not going to have herds. He's going to have maybe one cow, maybe two sheep. And it will happen that because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds, for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. Now you understand that this is a sign of judgment. All they're going to have is milk, which is ironic because God, when he was bringing Israel into the land, he said this is the land flowing with milk and honey. So it was originally a blessing. It was originally a great thing. The land of milk and honey. Oh, yes, take me there. Now God says, I'm going to punish you so much, all you're going to have is milk and honey. All you're going to have is milk from the cow and maybe milk from your sheep. And that better be satisfying to you because that's all you get. And there's going to be an abundance of that alone because he's about to describe how there's going to be no food and there's going to be no wine. And there's... But you're going to have milk. Yeah, you'll have that. And honey, because the plants are going to so overgrow that area of Israel that there's going to be an abundance of bees. And so naturally, there's going to be honey, and that's all you get to eat. Once upon a time, you thought that was really sweet. I'm going to use that very thing to judge you. Mm. Now, it will come about in that day that a man may have or may keep alive a heifer, one cow, and a pair of sheep. And it will happen that because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver, it will become briars and thorns. No more wine, no more grapes, no more produce. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. It's going to become a place of warfare, and your enemies are going to come down on it. And as for all the hills, which used to be cultivated with a hoe, all the places where you used to grow your crops, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. Okay, so God has just said... I'm going to punish you. I'm definitely going to punish you. This is all actually going to occur. And I'm faithful, and I'm going to give you a sign of my faithfulness. And that sign is that your Messiah, the one who is God with us, is actually coming to the planet. And he's going to redeem you from your sinfulness and redeem you from your rebellion against me. Because I'm faithful to you, even though you're not faithful to me. And that's the God we serve, the God who is faithful to us even as we remain in our oftentimes rebellious state. Why? Because he's sovereign and because he's faithful to his word. And that means he's absolutely trustworthy. And that's why Jesus can walk around his whole life saying, be at peace, don't be afraid, it's me. Same thing the king was told. Mm -hmm. King Ahaz didn't obey it. Mm -hmm. I hope we do.
questions. Um, when he he's making the uh, giving the sign to Ahaz, or he asked Ahaz for the sign that he'd like to see. And of course, Ahaz turns that down, and then when God gives him the sign, tells him what that sign is going to be, and he addresses him, he says, "O house of David." Listen, O house of David. So he's talking specifically to the house of David, past Ahaz. And then he says, Behold, a virgin will be born. And it seems to me like he's saying that a virgin is going to be born to that house, which is the tribe of Judah. Yeah, it's a sign to the house. Mm -hmm. And that's what Jesus is, the line of the tribe of Judah. I think that's all valid. Because it's specifically a sign to the house of David. Right to demonstrate that God is still being faithful to the house of David, even as they continue being faithless toward him. Yep. Still pretty remarkable, though, huh? Yes. Yeah. Anything else? All right. You glad you were here? Yes, sir. Happy birthday to Kellen. Thank you. We've already sung to you. Don't make a big deal of it. It's over. It's over. Let it go. All right, then say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.